Chapter Seventeen of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Moonfleet by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter Seventeen. At Imeguen. As if a thief should steal a tainted vest, some dead man's spoil and sicken of his pest. Hood. "'Tis bitterer to me than wormwood, the memory of what followed, "'and I shall tell the story in the fewest words I may. "'We were cast into prison, and lay there for months "'in a stone cell with little light and only foul straw to lie on. "'At first we were cut and bruised from that tussle and cudgelling in Alderbrand's house, "'and it was long before we were recovered of our wounds, "'for we had nothing but bread and water to live on, and that so bad as barely to hold body and soul together. Afterwards the heavy fetters that were put about our ankles set up sores and galled us so that we scarce could move for pain. And of the iron galled my flesh, my spirit chafed ten times more within those damp and dismal walls. Yet all that time Elzevir never breathed a word of reproach, though it was my wilfulness had led us into so terrible a strait. At last came our jailer one morning, and said that we must be brought up that day before the Gerecht, which is their court of assize, to be tried for our crime. So we were marched off to the courthouse, in spite of saws and heavy irons, and were glad enough to see the daylight once more and drink the open air, even though it should be to our death that we were walking, for the jailer said, they were like to hang us for what we had done. In the courthouse our business was soon over, because there were many to speak against us, but none to plead our cause. And all being done in the Dutch language I understood nothing of it, except what Elzevir told me afterwards. There was Mr. Alderbrand in his black gown and buckled shoes with tip-tilted heels, standing at a table and giving evidence, how that one afternoon in August came two evil-looking English sailors to his house under pretence of selling a diamond, which turned out to be but a lump of glass, and that having taken observation of all his dwelling, and more particularly the approaches to his business-room, they went their ways. But later in the same day, or rather night, as he sat matching together certain diamonds for a coronet ordered by the most illustrious, the Holy Roman Emperor, these same ill-favoured English sailors burst suddenly through shutters and window, and made forcible entry into his business-room. There they furiously attacked him, wrenched the diamond from his hand, and beat him within an ace of his life. But by the good providence of God and his own foresight, the window was fitted with a certain alarm which rang bells in other parts of the house. Thus his trusty servants were summoned, and after being themselves attacked and nearly overborne, succeeded at last in mastering these scurvy ruffians, and handing them over to the law, from which Mr. Alderbrand claimed sovereign justice. Thus much Elzevir explained to me afterwards, but at that time when that pretender spoke of the diamond as being his own, Elzevir cut in and said in open court that twas a lie, and that his precious stone was none other than the one that we had offered in the afternoon, when Alderbrand had said twas glass. Then the diamond merchant laughed, and took from his purse our great diamond, which seemed to fill the place with light and dazzled half the court. He turned it over in his hand, poising it in his palm like a great flourishing lamp of light, 
and asked if it was likely that two common sailor-men should hawk a stone like that. Nay more, that the court might know what daring rogues they had to deal with, he pulled out from his pocket the quittance given him by Shalomoff the Jew of Petersburg for this same jewel, and showed it to the judge. Whether it was a forged quittance, or one for some other stone, we knew not. But Elzevir spoke again, saying that the stone was ours, and we had found it in England. When Mr. Alderbrand laughed again, and held the jewel up once more, were such pebbles, he asked, found on the shore by every squalid fisherman? And the great diamond flashed as he put it back into his purse, and cried to me, Am I not queen of all the diamonds of the world? Must I house with this base rascal? But I was powerless now to help. After Alderbrand, the serving-men gave witness, telling how they had trapped us in the act, red-handed. And as for this jewel, they had seen their master handle it any time in these past six months. But Elzevir was galled to the quick with all their falsehoods, and burst out again, that they were liars, and the jewel ours, till a jailer who stood by struck him on the mouth and cut his lip to silence him. The process was soon finished, and the judge in his red robe stood up and sentenced us to the galleys for life, bidding us admire the mercy of the law to outlanders, for, had we been but Dutchmen, we should sure have hanged. Then they took and marched us out of court, as well as we could walk for fetters, and Elzevir with a bleeding mouth. But as we passed the place where Alderbrand sat, he bows to me and says in English, "'Your servant, Mr. Trenchard, I wish you a good day, Sir John Trenchard of Moonfleet in Dorset.' The jailer paused a moment, hearing Alderman speak to us, though not understanding what he said. So I had time to answer him. "'Good day, Sir Alderbrand, liar and thief, and may the diamond bring you evil in this present life, and damnation in that which is to come.' So we parted from him, and at the same time departed from our liberty— and from all joys of life. We were fettered together with other prisoners in droves of six, our wrists manacled to a long bar, but I was put into a different gang from Elzevir. Thus we marched a ten days' journey into the country to a place called Imeguen, where a royal fortress was building. That was a weary march for me, for it was January with wet and miry roads, and I had little enough clothes upon my back to keep off rain and cold. On other side rode guards on horseback, with loaded flintlocks across the saddle-bow, and long whips in their hands with which they let fly at any laggard. Though it was hard enough for men to walk where the mud was over the horses' fetlocks. I had no chance to speak to Elzevir all the journey, and indeed spoke nothing at all, for those to whom I was chained were brute beasts rather than men and spoke only in Dutch to boot. There was but little of the buildings of the fortress begun when we reached Emuegoin, and the task that we were set to was the digging of the trenches and other earthworks. I believe that there were five hundred men employed in this way, and all of them condemned, like us, to galley-work for life. We were divided into squads of twenty-five, but Elzevir was drafted to another squad on a different part of the workings, so I saw him no more, except at odd times, now and again, when our gangs met, and we could exchange a word or two in passing. Thus I had no solace of any company but my own, and was driven to thinking, and to occupy my mind with the recollection of the past. And at first the life of my boyhood, 
now lost for ever, was constantly present even in my dreams, and I would wake up thinking that I was at school again under Mr. Glenny, or talking in the summer-house with Grace, or climbing Weatherbeach Hill with the salt channel breeze singing through the trees. But alas, these things faded when I opened my eyes, and knew the foul-smelling wood hut and floor of fetid straw where fifty of us lay in fetters every night. I say I dreamt these things at first, but by degrees remembrance grew blunted, and the images less clear, and even these sweet, sad visions of the night came to me less often. Thus life became a weary round, in which month followed month, season followed season, year followed year, and brought always the same eternal, profitless work. And yet the work was merciful, for it dulled the biting edge of thought, and the unchanging evenness of life gave wings to time. In all the years the locust set for me at Emenguin, there is but one thing I need speak of here. I had been there a week when I was loosed one morning from my irons, and taken from work into a little hut apart, where there stood a half-dozen of the guard, and in the midst a stout wooden chair with clamps and bands. A fire burned on the floor, and there was fume and smoke that filled the air with a smell of burned meat. My heart misgave me when I saw that chair and fire, and smelt that sickly smell, for I guessed this was a torture-room, and these the torturers waiting. They forced me into the chair and bound me there with lashings and a cramp about the head, and then one took a red horn from the fire upon the floor, and tried it a little way from his hand to prove the heat. I had screwed up my heart to bear the pain as best I might, but when I saw that iron sighed for sheer relief, because I knew it for only a branding tool and not the torture. And so they branded me on the left cheek, setting the arm between the nose and cheekbone where it was plainest to be seen. I took the pain and scorching light enough, seeing that I had looked for much worse, and should not have made mention of the thing here at all, were it not for the branding mark they used. Now this mark was a Y, being the first letter of Iembegun, and set on all the prisoners that worked there, as I found afterwards. But to me it was much more than a mere letter, and nothing less than the black Y itself, or cross-pall of the Mahoons. Thus as a sheep is marked with his owner's keel, and can be claimed wherever he may be, so here was I branded with the keel of the Mahoons, and marked for theirs in life or death, whithersoever I should wander. T'was three months after that, and the mark healed and well set, that I saw Elzevir again. And as we passed each other in the trench and called a greeting, I saw that he too bore the cross-pole full on his left cheek. Thus years went on, and I was grown from boy to man, and that no weak one either, for though they gave us but scant food and bad, the air was fresh and strong, because Emenguin was meant for palace as well as fortress, and they chose a healthful site. And by degrees the moats were dug, and ramparts built, and stone by stone the castle rose, till t'was near the finish, and so our labour was not wanted. Every day squads of our fellow-prisoners marched away, and my gang was left till nearly last, being engaged in making good a culvert that heavy rains had broken down. It was in the tenth year of our captivity, 
and in the twenty-sixth of my age, that one morning, instead of the guard marching us to work, they handed us over to a party of mounted soldiers, from whose matchlocks and long whips I knew that we were going to leave Imenguen. Before we left, another gang joined us, and how my heart went out when I saw Elzevir among them. It was two years or more since we had met even to pass a greeting, for I worked outside the fortress, and he on the great tower inside. And I took note, his hair was whiter, and a sadder look upon his face. And as for the cross pall on his cheek, I never thought of it at all, for we were all so well used to the mark, that if one bore it, not stamped upon his face, we should have stared at him as on a man born with but one eye. But though his look was sad, yet Elzevir had a kind smile and hearty greeting for me as he passed, and on the march, when they served out our food, we got a chance to speak a word or two together. Yet how could he find room for much gladness, for even the pleasure of meeting was marred, because we were forced thus to take notice, it were, of each other's misery, and to know that the one had nothing for his old age but to break in prison, and the other nothing but the prison to eat away the strength of his prime. Before long, all knew whither we were brown, for it leaked out we were to march to the Hague, and thence to Scheveningen, to take ship to the settlements of Java, where they used transported felons on the sugar-farms. Was this the end of young hopes and lofty aims to live and die a slave in the Dutch plantation? Hopes of grace, hopes of seeing Moonfleet again, were dead long, long ago. And now was there to be no hope of liberty, or even wholesome air, this side of the grave, but only burning sun and steaming swamps, and the crack of the slave-driver's whip till the end came? Could it be so? Could it be so? And yet what help was there, or what release? Had I not watched ten years for any gleam or loophole of relief, and never found it? If we were shut in cells or dungeons in the deepest rock, we might have schemed escape. But here, in the open, fettered up in droves, what could we do? They were bitter thoughts enough that filled my heart as I trudged along the rough roads, fettered by my wrists to the long bar. And seeing Elzevir's white hair and bowed shoulders trudging in front of me, remembered when that head had scarce a grizzle on it, and the back was straight as the massive stubborn pillars in old Moonfleet Church. What was it had brought us to this pitch? And then I called to mind a July evening, years ago, the twilight summer-house and a sweet, grave voice that said, Have a care how you touch the treasure. It was evilly come by, and will bring a curse with it. Aye, t'was the diamond had done it all, and brought a blight upon my life, since that first night I spent in Moonfleet Vault. And I cursed the stone, and Blackbeard, and his lost Mahoons, and trudged on, bearing their cognizance branded on my face. We marched back to the Hague, and through that very street where Alderbrand dealt, only the house was shut, and the boar that bore his name taken away. So it seemed that he had left the place, or else was dead. Thus we reached the quays at last, and though I knew that I was leaving Europe and leaving all hope behind, it was a delight to smell the sea again, and fill my nostrils with the keen salt air. End of chapter 17 Recording by Simon Evers